as we meet every Sunday. Today's no exception. Peter has a very important word for us. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be in verses 11 and 12 this morning. I'll give you a chance to turn there. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. We've been prepared for this word in these moments of singing. We have prayed to God in our songs. And I want you to bow your head now. I just want you to listen to me for a moment as we prepare to hear this text proclaimed. If, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you are loved by God. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to camp out in your mind and I pray that it'll drive down into your heart. You are loved by the creator of all things. As you have your heads bowed, I want you to listen to what Peter has said to this end because he has proven this to us in these verses prior to what we've, we will look at today. All the way back to the third verse of chapter 1. Here's proof that you are loved by God because it says, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's about you, Christian. In verse 4, He has given us an inheritance that He keeps in heaven and it's imperishable. And it's undefiled and it's for you, Christian. Just meditate on that for a minute. Verse 18 of chapter 1, we were ransomed from the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers. God ransomed us from these ways because He loves you, Christian. Verse 19, he saved us. He did this ransoming work with the precious blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. You're loved, Christian, by God. Deeply, profoundly. Verse 14 of chapter 1, he's called our father and we're called his children. It's a love relationship. Father to child. In chapter 2, verse 9, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and listen to this, a people for God's own possession. He possesses us through His Son, Jesus, because He loves us. Also in verse 9, He called us, He called you, Christian, out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why? Because He loves you deeply. He loves you all the way. Verse 10, once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Why? It's because God loves us, Christian. 
So as you continue to have your heads bowed and you take some of these verses in that Peter's given to us, do you feel that? Do you feel like you are loved by God? I've just given you evidence to show that you are. Do you feel that? Do you embrace that? Do you feel God's love upon your life? Because if you do, the right response is to worship Him. And we've done pretty good so far on that this morning. But maybe you're here and you don't feel this love of God that Peter has told us about straight up, straight out of the Word. Maybe you don't feel it. Maybe you're beaten down in an aspect of your life. Maybe you've just been throttled all week. Pounded. Maybe you're entangled in sinful ways that you've not repented of. I'm going to tell you, if we live as a people unrepentant of sin in our lives, we're going to have a real hard time feeling the love of God. It, it, I don't think it's even possible. If you have professed Christ as your Lord, you are loved by God. And non-Christian here in this room this morning, non-Christian hearing this, this love is to be had by you. This God that loves us, believers, He loves you so much that that Son He sent, Jesus Christ, died for you. Would you embrace Him? Would you envelop yourself with an awareness of the love of God that he showed you by giving his only son on a cross for you? Would you join us in calling him Father because you become a child of him? This morning, God's going to tell us through Peter, through me. No, he, he, he's going to urge us to live as if we're beloved by God. He does love you, Christian. Non-Christian, He loves you. He's extended the invitation to you to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to become His child. There's love in that. And He's telling us this morning that we are beloved and therefore we've got to live like it. We have got to live as if we know for sure that we are beloved of God. So look with me, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and listen to this. Beloved. This is not Peter loving on us, although he does. This beloved, you are beloved by God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. That's a rich two verses of Scripture. 
You are beloved, Christian. And we are urged. Peter says, I urge you to pay attention to do what I'm about to say to you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he urges us to do, right there in verse 11, is to do two, two things. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I want to break down those two things right quick. We are called to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, abstain. Real simple definition here. Don't play around with temptations to sin. Abstain. Uh, Romans thirteen fourteen says, Make no provisions for the flesh. Do not allow your fleshly desires, these passionate desires of the flesh that Peter talks about, have any place within your life. Why? Because you're beloved of God. And because of that, you can do what's being called for here. Because you're loved by God, you can actually abstain from the passions of the flesh. You are to completely avoid the things that would discredit your claim that I am beloved by God. What are passions of the flesh? This is a a whole host of things. We don't just single this down to lust or anything like that. This is a, a host of sins and sinful tendencies and temptations. These are strong desires. These are fallen desires. These are things that are against God's commands. The flesh is against the commands of God. We are to abstain from them. Why? Because we're beloved by God. And he's caused us to be born again. And he ransomed us. And he gave us his only son. We weren't, we're not a people, but now we're God's people. He, we, didn't, we needed mercy and we got it. And so we are called by God to abstain from words that don't honor him and that don't honor one another. We are to abstain from thoughts that don't honor him. We are to abstain from actions that go against His commands and harm one another. We are to abstain, abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes like this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Peter saying, don't live like that. That's what you once were. But now, beloved of God, you abstain from those things. That's the mark of the Christian life. How are you doing? Are you abstaining? From the passions of your flesh. Peter uses some very strong language here. Because he says these passions of the flesh. Look at this. Verse 11. Right at the end of verse 11. They wage war against our souls. War. People. We live in war times. Everyone in this room is in the trenches of a war. And this war will rage on until Christ comes again or He calls us home. 
we see throughout the scriptures, we live in war times. The, the false shepherds back in Ezekiel or Jeremiah, I can't remember, they are chastised by God for declaring to God's people, peace, peace, when there is no peace to be found. There is a devil, there is a war, there is a prowling lion that seeks someone to devour. We are not to sound the, the signal for peace in these days that we live in. We are to see that we are living in a time of danger. But we live in a time of danger with confidence and hope. This is not a downer sermon. But we need to understand the times that we live in. Galatians 5, I want you to turn there with me. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and following through about 26. I just want you to take this in. You might make a note of this in your margin in 1 Peter 2, right by verse 11. I want you to listen to how Paul describes to the Galatian church the world in which they live in. And this applies to us today in 2014. Galatians 5, starting in 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You hear Peter's language there. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. You hear the oppositions? For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is different, he tells us here. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. We are not forbidden from doing those things. The law forbids that we do those other things. These things, there's no law against them. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, here's some more language, crucified the flesh. That's war language. Have you crucified the flesh? Are you abstaining from the passions of your flesh? If we live by the Spirit, verse 25, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We live in a wartime, folks. And I think I'm talking your language. I think you know what I'm talking about because you're going to go to war next Tuesday. Something's going to pop into your head. You're going to be tempted to use your tongue to do something evil. You're going to be tempted to use your hands in a wrong way. You're in a wartime. And Peter's calling you and me, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to abstain from those things. Don't do them. And there's a great purpose that we'll see here in a minute. John Owen is, a, is an old theologian, theologian from, I don't know right now, maybe the 1700s. But he has this saying that I have embraced. He says, you be killing sin... Or sin will be killing you. That's how we are to live, Christian. 
We've got sinful tendencies and temptations. We need to go after them with a hatchet. And we need to whack them down. Cut them out. We need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Just let this rain down on you. Here's Paul in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore. You hear this war language? You be killing sin or sin be killing you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put on put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put to death. Put off the old self. You've been born again. Put on the new self. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Man, there's some extreme language in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, what? Matthew 5... I don't remember where it is. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. You hear this wartime language? That's crucifying flesh. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. We don't literally gouge out, right? We don't literally cut off. We tame our tongue and we submit it to the God who loves us and caused us to be born again in His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, there's a wrong attitude towards sinful tendencies in our lives. And I want to call it out. Have you ever heard the phrase, let go and let God Okay, that's good in some settings, okay? But that's not how we wage war against our temptations to sin. No, no. Paul tells us, Peter tells us to abstain. Paul tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't say let go and let God. That says to me, you work with fear and trembling. And then it says, for it's God who is at work in you. The only reason I would want to work this out is because God loved me and saved me from my sins. But I can't let go and let God. No, I'm to take an active role in taking this word and I am to obey God and tear out eyes and cut off hands and abstain from the passions of the flesh. And when I do that and when you do that, that is called raw, authentic Worship of God. When we say, I can't do that, and I'm going to do a 180, and I'm walking away from that, we are honoring the Lord who said, don't do that. When we go and play with it, though, we're worshiping ourselves. I'm going to play with this for a minute. That is self-idolatry. And it is against the God who loves us. And so, letting go and letting God... No, I I am to abstain. I am to work it out with fear and trembling. I am to put to death. I am to put off the old self, put on the new self. I'm supposed to do something in this Christian life. 
Lest I be some robot that God's just got puppet strings on. That's not who I am. I am to worship him. If I let go and let God, really, I thought this through this week. If I really did that, then I'm saying, God, worship yourself for me. Right? I'm, I'm not going to put off, the, I'm not going to put that to death. I'm not going to abstain. Lord, I'm just going to let go and let you worship you for me. No, I need to worship God by abstaining, and crucifying, and tearing out, and cutting off, and throwing away. That's worship. You have an active role in your relationship with God. And that action is called worship. So eternity is at stake. Because Peter says that these passions of our flesh are waging war against your soul. We're not going to camp out on that long. But soul, you have a soul that's going to last forever. God put his image in that soul. And that soul will not be snuffed out. Now, that soul can go one of two places for all of eternity. And the passions of flesh are waging war against that soul because they want that soul to go to the wrong place, a real place called hell for all of eternity. And God, your Father, has beloved you, and he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. They're waging war against you. Don't do that because there's a day of visitation that we'll get to in a moment, and I want that to be a good day for you. My favorite theologian is Jonathan Edwards. He lived in the 1700s. I know when he lived. He says this. God has appointed this whole life to be all as a race or a battle. The state of rest wherein we shall be so out of danger as to have no need of watching and fighting is reserved for another world. That other world is heaven, new heavens, new earth. And that has all kinds of exile language in it, doesn't it? Our state of rest is not in this world where we live as exiles and sojourners. We have a, an eternal state of rest that will be found at the throne of Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's when we rest. Until then, we are to fight. We are to struggle. We are to watch. And when we do so, we worship the one who has an eternity set for us where we can rest. There's a purpose. Now we go to verse 12. There's a purpose that we're to abstain and fight this war that we live in. Peter is concerned about our actions. He's concerned about our conduct and what it will say to other people. We are to conduct ourselves in a way, he says, that is honorable or excellent would be another word in front of the Gentiles. Who is a Gentile? A Gentile in that day was a, a, a non-believer, a non-follower of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, we have Gentiles in the world that we live in today. They are people that don't believe in Jesus Christ. We are to conduct ourselves among non-believers in honorable ways, is what Peter is telling us. This is a big, big theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. Look in verse 15 of chapter 1. Peter says over there, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. 
He's worried about our conduct. He wants us to act rightly. Now, we act rightly from a right belief, right? But he wants us to be holy and pure in our conduct. Look over in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 3. He says this, The time is past. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's these Gentiles again. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So the Gentiles live these ways. They're ways that you and I used to live, right? Because we haven't been Christians all of our lives. So we put off that old way, but the Gentiles are still living that way. And Peter says, conduct yourselves in front of them in honorable ways. So our world is full of gossips. Lost people, non-Christians, rip other people to shreds with their tongues and their gossip. How do we live our, our lives out in honorable ways before those people? We're not gossips. We don't play those reindeer games. Our world is covetous. We don't covet. Our world is self-centered. We are others-oriented. Our world is lacking self-control. We live with self-control. And on and on and on. We are to live in this world in such a way that they see honorable actions coming out of us. They need to see that we're different. Thus the term exiles and sojourners. Peter writes this to us from a heart of evangelism. Plain and simple. We need to care about what the lost world thinks about our actions because our actions are going to reflect who our God is. And if our actions are bad, they're going to say, I'm my God. And if our actions are honorable, they're going to say, he's God and he's worthy of you following. So this is an evangelistic note that Peter is sounding to us. This comes from chapter 2, verse 9. Look, at the, look up there, right up above in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then watch this. That, here's the purpose, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're to function that's what we talked about last week. We are to function as a royal priesthood so that we can proclaim the excellency of God to the Gentiles, to the world that doesn't know God. It's evangelism. And here we are to conduct ourselves in honorable ways before the unbelieving world. That's what Peter says. And there's a great purpose. So that... Ultimately, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. We don't want him glorifying us. That Heinze guy, man, he's a good guy. I don't want that. I want them to say, that God that Heinze guy worships, that's a good God. It's called Christian living in a lost world. Look at what Peter says here. He says, so that... 
when they speak against you as evildoers. You need to understand this just a little bit. This, this isn't what it might seem like at first. Peter wrote this letter in the mid-60s A.D. We don't know exactly when, but let's just say 65 A.D. Christians during that era were thought of by the, the societies that they lived in, that they were exiles in, Christians were accused of being evildoers. Now I want you to listen to what they were accused of doing that was considered evil. First of all, they were accused of practicing cannibalism. This is true history. We talked about this in Sunday school upstairs in the youth room. Jesus says, eat my blood and drink, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm the bread of life. And we do this thing called the Lord's Supper where we remember his body and his blood. Okay? The, the pagan world, the Gentile world looked at Christians and said, you're an evildoer because you're a cannibal. <laughs> you're, you're eating human flesh and drinking human blood. They, they don't get the spiritual connotation that was given in the scriptures. They took that literally and accused Christians of being cannibals. They accused Christians of immorality, incestuous immorality, because the Christians of the day called each other brother and sister. And so they took that to literally mean that we're incestuous people. They blamed natural disasters, all kinds of natural disasters popping up. They blamed that on the Christians and called the Christians atheists meaning they had no gods, not the God. And if you would worship these Roman gods, these Greek gods, if you would worship them, all these bad calamities wouldn't happen to us anymore. There was a fire in AD 64 that ravaged Rome. And Nero blamed that, said the Christians caused that fire, and I'm not going to say millions, thousands of Christians were killed because they were accused of starting this fire in Rome. So when Peter says here, when Peter says, when they speak against you as evildoers, that's what he's talking about. It's not the speakers that are the evildoers. When they call you, Christian, an evildoer, you're to conduct yourselves in an honorable way before them. So now let's fast forward to 2014, because we're not accused of natural disasters. We're not called incestuous immoral people. We're not called cannibals, are we? I, I haven't been called a cannibal in my life for Lord's Supper. No, but I've been called an evildoer. Perhaps you have too. We're evil if we have the audacity to believe in a six days of creation. Uh, the Bible says God created in six days, and we believe that, and people deride us for this profession of belief in the Bible. We are called ignorant if we don't believe in evolution, right? Okay, but, but, but still we're not called evildoers yet. Let me tell you where we're called evildoers. We're called evildoers when we take a stand for life. When we stand in defense of the unborn. We're called evildoers. Right? I wish Crystal Derrick was here this morning. She saw that happen last year down at the state capitol. Christians were called evildoers for protecting the unborn. We're called evildoers in this society that we live in when we take a stand for biblical marriage. One man, one woman, till death do us part. We're called evil. 
for that. So Peter's words are very applicable to us today. Don't you love this about the Bible? I wish this part weren't true, but it is. He, this Bible never goes out of date. We are called evildoers in the age that we live in for our Christian beliefs, just like Peter's audience 2,000 years ago. And so the world, we need to understand, has been against us as Christians since the days of Christ, the one that we follow. Jesus warned us of this, John 15, starting in 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So we're exiles, we're sojourners, we live amongst Gentiles, non-believers, and Peter says to us, we are to conduct ourselves with honor so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. It's evangelism. If we conduct ourselves rightly, before the lost world, that can be used by God for them to have a good day of visitation. And that day of visitation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is straight out of Jesus' playbook in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and do what? Let me hear you. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's Jesus. That's Peter. Now, I want to caution us here. I want to caution us. Good conduct amongst the lost is not evangelism. Listen to me. Acting right, even living this out amongst lost people, is not evangelism. Evangelism is sharing with words... The gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ took on flesh and lived on this earth, never sinned, died on a cross innocent, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And if you believe in that, he was a substitute for you on the cross, and you are not subject to the death penalty that God proclaimed on mankind long, long ago. And you have sinned. And this is true for you if you'll believe. Will you believe in this? That's evangelism. It also includes that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and he's coming again on a day of visitation. Will you be ready for that day? That is evangelism. People don't hear all that when we just tell the truth and when we don't gossip and when we don't covet and when we don't steal and when we... Okay, they say there's a moral human being, but there's no Christ in that. They need to know why we don't gossip and we don't covet and we don't steal. Because the maker of the universe told me not to. You see it? So good actions are not evangelism. But bad actions 
will hinder, if not block, evangelism. So our conduct really, really matters. But we cannot walk through this world living out good deeds before people without proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. Or we're not evangelistic if we do that. So we've got to have words and we've got to have deeds that match. That match. We've got to do both. Nothing worse than a, a message that's contradicted with actions. Nobody is going to chase after that. No one's going to give glory to God on the day of visitation when our words don't match our actions. So there's an evangelistic theme here that Peter is giving us, and he's telling us, conduct yourselves well before unbelievers. And what's implied in here is they're going to attribute your good behavior to Jesus Christ. What is going to enable people in your life that you're conducting yourselves well before, what's going to enable them to connect your actions to Jesus Christ? What is it? It's your tongue and the words that come from your heart about the truth about him. So, here's a great quote from a guy named Robert Leeton. When a Christian walks above reproach, conducts himself well before the Gentiles, his enemies have nowhere to fasten their teeth on him. Don't you love that graphic? (laughs) His enemies have nowhere to fasten their teeth on him, but are forced to gnaw on their malignant tongues. (laughs) Okay? When we conduct ourselves well before the lost world, they can't malign us with their tongues. They can't call us evildoers for long. They can only chew on their own tongue because they've got no rock to throw at us. And the goal of that is, as Peter says, that they would see our good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. So let me conclude with that. There there is a most definite day of visitation coming. I want you to be careful. I want you to be real careful. I read this week. That, that, that there are some Christian leaders that are very near and dear to you and me that are predicting that we're right on the cusp of Jesus coming again. Don't relax. But, 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 but don't buy that either. Be careful. We're told over and over again, that's going to happen. That's going to come like a thief in the night. The minute somebody declares it's about to happen, nah, I don't think so, because that's going to defy God's promise that we're not going to know. <laughs> But I will tell you that there are things going on in our world that say that we're living in these last days. You want to know what what the most evident thing that has happened in our world that's evidence to the last days being upon us? A crucifixion of a a (laughs) God-man. And that was 2,000 years ago. You want proof that we're living in the last days? The proof is Jesus was crucified and he rose from the dead. That's when the last days started. And those last days are going to end when he who ascended to the right hand of God is going to come again to gather up those that believe in him and to judge those that don't. There is a day of visitation that is bearing down on us. And we don't know if it's a thousand years from now or next Thursday. We do not know. So we live every day like it's the last. And so we share the gospel with the lost in our conduct, in our words, 
so that when this day comes, they will glorify God on that day. We do not want to see people horrified on the day of visitation. You have not seen anything more horrific than that. We want a multitude of multitudes of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands to celebrate this day of visitation. And Peter says that will happen if you conduct yourselves well before them and your speech and your actions point people to God who's coming again. So that's our word this morning. There's a day of visitation that we are going to be used by God to prepare a multitude of people for. And we need to go into this next week with our radar screens up looking for opportunities to be used by God to prepare people for that day. So what will Jesus' day of visitation be for you? I tell you what, I want you to bow your heads again like we did when we started. I want you to imagine this day of visitation. And at first, I want you to think about this from your perspective. Is that going to be a day that you give glory to God? Is that going to be a day that you, like we started, realize how beloved you are? Is, is that a day that you're going to look to other people in your life to see their response to that day? Is that going to be a, a, a glorifying response to God's return? Or is that going to be a, a horrific, terrifying nightmare of a day for somebody in your life that you know? We are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. So that that day is good for as many people as we can possibly influence for the gospel of Christ. Yeah, there's a day of visitation coming. And we need to be ready and we need to be getting as many people as ready as we possibly can. And that process in and of itself is true, authentic worship of the God who called us and made us. Father, there's, there's one part of me that prays as the book of Revelation closes. Amen, Lord, come, Jesus, come Lord Jesus. There's a, there's a strong desire, Father, for that day to be upon us right now, that you would deliver us from this exile state that we live in. Father, there's, a, there's another part of me, though, that... Is greatly concerned about that day coming upon somebody who's not ready. Father, I pray that that concern that I have would translate into action, ambitious, evangelistic action, to go proclaim the truth of Christ with my words and to substantiate them with my actions so that those people may glorify you when you come again. Father, prepare all of us for that day. Give us strength to endure until that day. And remind us often that you love us. Help us to find hope and peace and comfort in that truth. And I pray this 
In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.